Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Joshua Wedlock, PhD candidate in the Department of Linguistics at Macquarie University. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. I, that's actually the second time I've cursed in the beginning of an episode. You you might appreciate uh, Devalier. Um, yes. I interviewed him, Citation 44. And oh, that, nice. that, that was fun to just well, sort of surprise him like that because he's he's kind of famous in the world of cursing. I've seen a couple of videos of of the BBC interviewing him. So and, yeah, and no, I saw he, he was also cited in your paper. Yeah, um, he's done a lot of uh, really interesting research. And yes, I did cite him uh, and will be citing him again because I think uh, our research interests align. And so I actually – yeah, do look at a lot of his work and figure out, oh, that's interesting. How did he do that? Oh, so, yeah, I'm going to have to listen to that podcast. I'm going to be honest. I haven't listened to that one yet, but I will straight after this interview. Yeah, that's uh, Devalier, Citation 44. And in your paper, you have <laughs> you have a citation that you just don't come across every day. I'm not going to read it out loud. I don't really um, – I don't want to make it too big a deal about some of the words that are in this paper. But I just have to say – out of all the interviews I've done so far, I hope this isn't going to offend any of the previous guests. I, I love you all. Um, this was the most fun to read. So thank you for that. It really made my day. It wasn't – I like reading papers. I like reading academic papers. But, you know, sometimes you really have to focus and dig in and put mm. on the relaxing classical music to concentrate. And um, this one, uh, I, felt, I felt like you took me on a nice little, little ride and I didn't have to do too much work, which I appreciated. Oh, good. I think that was the, the paper, my paper. I think the reason for that was I was writing for specifically teachers, mm -hmm. not necessarily researchers. So I wanted uh, teachers to be able to draw straight from it and go, oh, I could use that or, oh, I'm not going to use that, whatever the case may be. So, yeah, thank you for the, for the compliment. So the article that we are discussing today is entitled Teaching About Taboo Language in EFL slash ESL Classes, a starting point. This was published in the Ortesl Journal. What what exactly is the what does Ortesl stand for? So Ortesl is the Oregon uh, Tesla Association. Okay. So they've actually um, they're, they're they're a pretty strong little group over there. They have their own um, annual meetings they have their own journal hmm. but it's all peer-reviewed uh, it's uh yeah I was, I was really impressed so they also do like um so teachers have to keep up to date with their ongoing points so they have to get points over there so they have to attend the seminars hmm. to get points so it's it's a really good um organization and, and i was reading their journals and they were looking for something to publish uh in this sort of field and i thought oh i could i'm going to submit there so that's why that's why i submitted there i think they do a really good job with there and i have no affiliation with them i'm in australia mm -hmm. um but i think they do a really good job of encouraging their their teachers to stay up to date and, and upskill so are you going to try to attend a conference in oregon at some point i uh, just did their online conference mm -hmm. two weeks ago oh, cool. uh, where where i presented some some research on swearing and taboo language so, yeah, they're very active, but 
would I like to get there? Yeah, one day when the borders open, but we're all stuck at this point. Yeah, Oregon's a beautiful place. Um, I haven't been, you've been there? You're yeah. from near there? Or? Yeah, my, my brother actually um, had his wedding there because his wife's oh, from nice. Oregon. And people are super nice, beautiful, beautiful weather. Um, sometimes, I mean, it's the Northwest, so there's, there's a lot of rainy seasons, but it's, yeah, it's a great place. The food was great. Everyone was pretty laid back. It's a, it's a place you definitely want to live, I think. It's one of the better places in America, I would say. Oh, that's good. Well, now I've got a link there. You know, I can go there and teach or something. Who knows? That's right. So, now, yeah. we last time we kind of interacted was at the JALT conference. You and I both presented for a Macquarie graduate showcase. We did indeed. And I got to uh, watch your presentation, which was which was great. Um, well, goes, uh, I'd have to say the same, same with yours. And that's where we became uh, sort of, you know, got, got connected, as you said. Uh, interest in both of the research projects. How did it feel when you were officially a PhD candidate? Did you feel differently? Do you, honestly, here's the thing. I, I spoke to my mentor at the time. She is now retired, but we're still in close contact. We're writing an article together at the moment. Nice. Um, I, she said, Josh, um, apply for the PhD. So I, I did. And they came back and says, you've been accepted but you haven't got the stipend from the government. You missed out by like 1%. So I said, okay, well, I'm still going to do it and work, work full-time, study part-time. So I was elated. But the funny thing was two weeks later, I got an email from the university saying, you've got a scholarship. Do you want to upgrade? But you'd have to come back to Australia and we need to know within five days. Were you in Korea at the time? I was in Korea at the time, and I just told my boss that I'll still be at this school doing my PhD, and we talked about juggling my schedule. Then I went back and said, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I've just got this offer. I'm going to leave. So I had five days to make up my mind whether to leave Korea or to stay after I decided to stay. So I was a bit different situation. I wow. was elated. Then I was confused. Then I was elated again. So for me, I actually am a domestic student because I have um, citizenship in Australia. So that's interesting. I don't think I even would with leave. that accent. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's fair enough. So you you've got citizenship. So you so you'd be domestic. I, but I don't think, even though that would be tempting to to just focus on the because I have a daughter and she's in school here. Mm. I don't think I would take them up on that op. They, I don't think they. So, like you said, the the qualifiers, you you have to move back on campus. Are they giving? Are yes. they paying for your housing? No, 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 no. no okay. it's, it's, so it's not a charity. So you're still a little <laughs> bit out of pocket, then. Yes, yes, but again, and we can all say, you know, it's because the world the way it is at the moment, it did work out for me. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a situation where you can work. And you're very good with your time. You're doing your podcast. You've just shown that you can complete a full-time degree, uh, which is quite intense. So you're in a great situation at the moment. You're in a job you like. You're doing something that you're happy doing. So you would still get the PhD offer, just not the stipend. I see. Okay. All right. So I, I didn't know they 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 hand out stipends. Ba- I get what I guess based on your final score for the the thesis for the the MRES. 
Yes, correct. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, let, let's go back to Korea. You said you lived there for, you said five years, six years? No, it was like seven years in the so, end I was there. Wow. It's some oh. great times. Now, were, were you employed at the same place the whole time? Because in this paper, it sounded like you did some recruiting at private language schools. Were those other schools beyond they what were, you were teaching at? Or that was that part yes. of like a corporation or something? No, so I was, I was at a private institute which worked exclusively with adults. And to do my research, I didn't want to do it with students I had a really good rapport with or right. knew because I thought that although you'd probably be broaching the subject of taboo language with students you probably already have a good rapport with, I wanted to see if it could be done with students no matter what the relationship was. Like I could go in and teach grammar. I could go in and teach vocabulary or reading. So is there a way to teach taboo language or about taboo language in a pedagogically sound way, which is not offensive because some people do find taboo language offensive. Now this was action research. Was this, was this work that you, you used for your masters? One of the masters? No. So I'd finished my master's, okay. uh, which was a master's of research. And then I wanted to put it, I told my mentor at the time, I said, I want to delay applying for my PhD, although I had the, the grades to get in, because I want to actually do some research and hone my skills. And for me at that time, action research was very plausible mm -hmm. and it was very feasible for me to do. So I thought, well, this is a, a great opportunity. I've, I've got everything I need to do it because my school had different branches. So I was allowed to go to a different branch, same school, but I didn't know any of the students mm -hmm. and do it that way. So yeah, I was, I was in a lucky situation where it, I could practice what I'd learned, put into practice what I'd learned. And that's why I did it. I just thought it's a great opportunity so I could learn more. And that's what I did. Well, here's the thing. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. I also taught at a private language school in Japan about 10 years ago. Yeah. And I, I have to say that at least at that particular school, there's no way they would let me do this. They, uh, they, they, there's no way they let me go to another branch. First of all, they, they, oh, no, no, we can't do that. You're, you know, you're assigned to this school. And then the other thing, they, they, they wouldn't let mm. – was it difficult getting approval? I could see why you could you – know, you don't need approval to do action research, but you need approval from obviously your, your boss. Yeah, was it difficult no, you, you, to get approval for that? Well, it wasn't just because I'd already laid the groundwork. So every week, we sometimes we have to work on the weekend. So I did a class just on the history of swearing. It was a speaking class, but I did, I did a class on the history of swearing. And this was probably four months before I started my research. And I went out to the front counter and my boss said to me, Josh, did you just teach a class on swearing? Mm -hmm. And my heart dropped. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this is not going to bode well for me. And I said sheepishly, um, yeah, yeah, yes, I, I did. And she said four. So there was about eight, I think there was like eight students in there. It wasn't mm -hmm. a huge class. 
But she said four out of the eight or half the class had come back and said that was the most fun they'd had in an English class. So this was uh, in a, you taught kind of elective style classes on the weekends. You had the choice. Yes. To, okay, I got it. Yeah. Okay. So people could do a class on, you know, people did class on watching friends or mm. debating or advanced vocabulary. You could do whatever you wanted as long as you could show the learners that it wasn't just winging it. You had to have had some idea of what you want them to get out of it. So okay. I thought, let's see how this goes. And that's where, when I went to, uh, appro- when I approached my boss, I said, do you remember when I did that? I'd like to do it on a bigger scale to see if that was just a fluke or if people can enjoy this class and learn from this class. So that's how it sort of started. All right. So then you taught four separate two-hour classes. Mm-hmm. And this, I guess like this was on the weekend. Um, yes. So this, the, the elective style. Uh, and then you got... Well, your final sample size was was twenty three, right? Did people drop out or uh, they still? No, st- so no, no, everyone got through. Well, uh, so you may be be reading the some of the results. So, for example, twenty three out of thirty two said this, or oh, eighteen sorry. out of what was the final uh, sample size? So it was it was thirty two. Thirty two, okay. So at eight in each class, okay, and so people had to apply. So I could do it half male, half female, and try to make sure that everyone was committed to their, and they only had to commit for one class. It wasn't like they had to do four classes. So it was a, a group of eight. I would teach a certain way. I'd get feedback. I'd get the students to fill in a survey. I would talk to them about the class. What did you like? What didn't you like? Get feedback. Then the next time I did it, be a different eight students, but I would have tweaked my approach kept what the students liked and tweaked or added, etc., and, and reflected on the order I taught things or what I taught. And sometimes I just found myself going, why did I teach that? Why did I try to do that? So that was a, it's a really good uh, reflective process as well. Oh, I see what I, I misunderstood. Okay, so there was 23 who had graduated university. Yes. And then you had nine uh, university, current university students. So that's right. Yep. You try you try to split it up the classes. What half male, half female? Did yes. you also try to spread out the ages? Looks like the the ages nineteen to fifty seven. Did you yes. did you so, try to uh, you know account for that? Not so much because they were grouped around the the early twenties. Uh, late twenties. I think the mean age was around thirty-one or something. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so we had a couple of. I'm not going to say older, but older than than the the the, the mean. So some fifty-seven, as you said, I think was the oldest, and then someone was in their early fifties. But then it dropped quite you know, quite rapidly down to the late mid late twenties. So it was. Yeah, all young professionals would be the the way I, I would have sort of described them if I was just to look at them as a group and not know their academic background. So, oh, they look like young professionals. So talk talk me through the two-hour structure. I know you mentioned that you did give some time for feedback at the end. Can you just yes. can you can you can you walk us through how the two-hour class was structured? I'll give you a breakdown of the sort of the final class. It might be easier. Yeah. So final class class I, I figured out what was working and what wasn't mm-hmm. so enter the class introduce myself and explain 
that, okay, you know today we're going to be talking about taboo language. And at this stage, I'd figured out that it's best to, if you're going to cover this topic, have an outline of the topics you're going to cover. And before you cover them, give the students a chance to opt in or opt out because swearing and taboo language, it might be fine in certain circumstances, but if you, if, if we're talking about racism, for example, and someone's had a, a very, a, a terrible time with this, they may not want to be in that part of the discussion mm-hmm. or they may really want to be, but either way you give people the, the choice to opt in or opt out. So, I gave everyone that opportunity that any time that you want to leave, you don't even have to ask permission. You can just leave or any time you've got a question, just just ask. So I set up the ground rules first for the class, and I, I told everyone that we're here to learn and no language is aimed at anyone. So I think the whole idea was setting this idea of it to be, for want of a better term, a safe environment that we're learning about language. We're not learning about insulting people. Um, so I set up the class with that. And then to break the ice, I always started with fun facts. So things like in, and I think, I think I may mention this before. One of the fun facts I like is in Samoa, that the first word for pretty much every child is the word. Hmm. And People don't believe me, and I tell, okay, well, Google it. And then they Google it, and they're like, wow, this is true. And it's because the worldview is that children come into the world evil, and they have to be taught to be good. Hmm. So they're looking for this sign of evilness, and the, the cooing sounds of a baby has a similar sound to, in their language, that word. So I start with that, then I start with, I talk about Shakespeare, and some of the swearing in Shakespeare, so I just, and then people start to give examples from Korean culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we set that we set the tone with breaking down the walls, so everyone feels relaxed because that's that's key to discussing this with a, a group of, of strangers. From there, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, so so from there, we we went into grammar, mm-hmm. grammar structure was always fun because I'm not sure what it's like in Japan, but in Korea, high stakes tests mm-hmm. such as TOEIC and IELTS, they need the, the, the results to get jobs or to get into universities. Mm-hmm. So they really, the students really need to learn grammar. So I find swearing a great way to teach grammar in an unconventional way because you juxtapose some of the rules of swearing did you, say, well, the, did you watch that YouTube video I sent you or had you seen that before? I hadn't seen that one, but I did watch it because it was a nice short little uh, clip. And yeah, they talk I about that. that it, it is great because the, the F-bomb is, as a, well, as most people know, the most versatile word in the, the English language. Hmm. Uh, so I love that one. But there's a couple in there which um, they didn't go over, which I go over in, in the class. So, for did example... You, did you practice pronunciation in this class as well? Uh, we did on just a couple of words which Koreans get wrong, but... Okay. Because um, that would like be I, funny if I was walking by and I heard sort of choral repetition practices go on. Yeah, so, so the ones... <laughs> 
the ones which um josh what are you teaching today (laughs) we're teaching not Mm -hmm. you know you have to change your (laughs) on your bed we're going to say so we we were really correcting so that was also a fun time exactly what you're saying there because you can pick up the the i know in thai i I don't think they say the s Mm -hmm. at the end of words okay so if you are riding your horse Mm -hmm. You can imagine what they're saying. There's, you're you're not saying the yes at the end. So, uh, the the way different languages enunciate and pronounce things is part of the class. But we only did it for the Korean specific. So, and mm. they they were the two big ones. They were and, problematic. And they're very problematic. <laughs> but once we broke it down, and and people saw the humor in it, people saw why. Um, teachers were drilling certain sounds like yeah because this could come across the wrong way by the way Uh, if you yeah here's just um a tip to anyone out there who's trying to pursue a higher degree if you want to sound like you're doing something in higher education just use that word problematic it's just it's such a great buzzword you can use it for (laughs) so many different it's just problematic and you can use it for so it's great it's very versatile word like that word I don't like receiving one, it so much in feedback, but I do appreciate when it's it's delivered well. It's it's definitely a great word, and it's up there with unpack. We need to unpack oh, yeah. things. And un, the underpinning of uh... oh, got to underpin. <laughs> so there are your three buzzwords of the day. <laughs> Ding! And next week, so, if you want to uh, sound like you're doing something, just say underpinning. No, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so I lost my track of thought now. What was I talking about? Uh, we were I was talking, talking about uh, yeah, grammar. Pr- pronunciation and grammar. Pronunciation. Yeah. And then we went into – so then we'd also discuss grammar. Um, we talked about the video you sent me. So, for example, negation. I gave them an example. Do you know Bill? And they, they would say yes or no because mm. Bill was a teacher at one of the schools. I don't even think that was his name now. It was just an example. I can't remember his name. We're calling Bill. So do you know Bill? So say yes, you know. Yes, I know Bill. Do you know Bill? No, I don't know Bill. I said, okay, so what about the phrase? <laughs> That's a good one. So negation doesn't always work with swearing or um, you know, right. I know, you know. Oh, yeah. He doesn't know. It means exactly the same thing. So seeing students actually get involved or like what the questions, what the hell, what the F-bomb, what the – so try to make that without swearing. Now, how familiar are you with Korean swear words at the time that you were teaching this class? Um, probably better than my knowledge of Korean vegetables. <laughs> so I, I could – yeah, I knew quite a, quite a few swear words because I, I played a lot of a sport and uh, drinking buddies and whatever would always try to teach me swear words and that was actually one of the reasons i was interested in swearing just the way i had seen myself when people reacted to me when i swore in korean and a situation where i saw students uh, sorry a teacher swear with a student and the student misunderstood so that's actually what got me into studying swearing those two things me swearing and seeing a mistake that happened from someone else swearing. Well, let's talk about that real quick and we can jump back into the paper. So, yeah, I think the story you said where you were kind of taken aback, which is another great buzzword. Mm. You were were taken aback when you were uh, sort of complimented on your Korean for the first time. And that was during during a basketball game? Correct, yes. 
So I was playing basketball and I've been playing with these same guys on the weekends for a few months and having small talk in Korean, uh, no problem with that. And then one day I, I swore at one of the players and he stopped and in Korean told me, oh, your Korean is so good. Nice. And I thought, I've been speaking to, in, in Korean with you for three months and you've never given me a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but suddenly I swear at you. And it was, the context was correct. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly it's like, oh, your Korean is amazing. And it did make me think that how much swearing is, it's, it's a rapport builder. It's such a social thing. Uh, people give it a, a, a bad name, like, oh, it's bad language. It's potty mouth. It's, it's foul. But actually, we, we can do some quite amazing and quite wonderful things with swearing, which which I think makes it also a, a quite a beautiful part of our language or I, any I, language. I actually really like that story because I could empathize with that. So if someone mm. uses an English curse word in the correct context, perfectly worded, yes. um, with the right pronunciation, I think they're probably a native speaker or native speaker level. It, it, it is in itself a level definer in some ways. Oh. And I, I, I totally agree because if you can do what you said, the, the right word at the right time in the right context, no one teaches you this unless you've got friends. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously it's it's not like you know, air quotes traditional language. It is something where you actually have to pay attention because if you get it wrong. You can sound really silly. And and my for example, my wife is a native – she's Japanese, but she's bilingual. She, her English is great. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell when she tries to practice or try to use a swear word that I've used, it's always like dipping her toes in the water. She doesn't – she's not quite comfortable yet. And she doesn't – and it's, it's funny because she doesn't say it quite right. It always makes me laugh. It's like, ah, oh, you need to work on your swearing a bit. You're not, you're not really up to snuff. And that's exactly what you're saying there is why I think educators need to address it because an educator who actually cares about their, their student wants to empower their students to present their identity and present their humor or present their anger if it happens to be in a way that they want to, not in the way that you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm no one's moral compass. It's something which I think if we can help our, our learners, like you said, your, your wife, it just gives them more power. Yeah, more and confidence what, in a social – like if you deliver yep. a curse word or a phrase at like a social gathering amongst friends, like for example, if we're in America with all of my friends, we're in Australia. And the, Austra the cursing in Australia and America is much different by the way. Absolutely, so if yes. So if she can curse – in those two situations and get a, a big pop, get a big reaction and everyone's laughing. Yeah. That would be an amazing feeling. I don't think there's a lot of cursing in Japanese. That's, 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 I'm frustrated. I wish there was more. I, I asked my wife and she doesn't really give me anything. Oh, there's not much cursing in Japanese. I guess there is, but not, it's not, not as much as Australia or America or England. Oh uh, yeah. I, th I think you're spot on, but they've got the honorifics, don't they? So if you use say the wrong form of you, that could be considered, quite taboo quite insulting almost yeah but they don't they don't apply those same rules to foreigners i uh, see that's that's 
one interesting element which I also found in Korea that I could make mistakes yeah, and they people, don't judge you for it. Yeah, it's and 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 I really appreciated uh, every time I tried to speak Korean to people because I'm I'm still not very good, but I, I try and people always happy. Oh, you're you're trying to learn a language. That's great. Uh, so that's um, yeah, it's, it's good that it happens in Japan as well. If you make the mistake, that it's not held against you, which is great. I think the arguments in this paper are uh, valid, and 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 I like the approach of the paper. The, the, again, the argument that you mentioned is okay. Can you defend yourself? If or are you aware of context? Mm. Um, I think that's important. That's a good argument that I hadn't thought about. The other is I think there was a quote in the paper. Maybe it was Devalier talking about the idea that if you if you don't inform your students, um, there's this element of a reduced personality. Yes. Yeah, so I like I, that. I like that quote. And and I think that is so true. Uh, and I've read it in several different papers, and I've also experienced it because we all have a social persona. We all have a professional persona. We all have a, if you're a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a, a dad, we all have different hats. And I think in, in some contexts, if we can yeah, bridge that divide between who I am and how I can use my language to, to take that stance and display myself, I think that's, that's why I like teaching, uh, especially languages, because it, it's, it, it empowers people. Uh, they say, you know, knowledge is power. I think language is power. If you, if you go to a country and you can't speak their language, your power is gone. So if we can give people social power as well, that's, that's, I'm all for that. Did you find in the class you were teaching that the times you were discussing Korean cursing, um, people were more uncomfortable than when you were discussing English cursing? Because that's what I yes. would assume. Yes, I am. You assume right, and I think that's got to do with the emotional connection. Mm -hmm. So when it's your you know, your language, your your native tongue, you've got this emotional connection to it. It's you know it sort of resonates from you. Where if it's your second language, unless you're highly fluent or you've been immersed in the culture. They still are just, for a lot of people, words. Yeah, no emotion. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Uh, which I'd be interested, and you don't have to answer this, but your wife is Japanese, mm -hmm. um, but you said she's bilingual, so it may not work for you. So like, when we talk about swearing, it's emotional, but what about I love you? Mm -hmm. When you, do, you, do you think it's, it's easier for you to say it in in English and have a meaning or like, is it I still in Japanese? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Japanese uh, people don't really emote so much via words mm. from what I would say. Um, okay. I, yeah, I, don't think people, I don't think people use that word that often. I, no, I think very. I think it would be very rarely, maybe like on your wedding day or something. I could be oh, wrong. Okay. Um, yeah, because I just think that that's also an emotional uh, part of our expression when you tell someone you love them. Right. And I wonder if it's for bilinguals or people who speak two languages may not be perfectly bilingual, but at, to some degree, I wonder if they have the same emotional distance 
mm. when they're using using emotional words like I hate you, I love you. So there's a research project a great, for someone. Yeah, for someone. <laughs> someone can do that. So, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that would be interesting, though. That would be interesting. Mm, no, absolutely, absolutely. I would. Um, I actually, I'd be curious to know which words have more emotional meaning in Japanese. Because that that that's actually related to your field. Because I don't think there's a lot of curse words in Japanese. So then you got to take it to the next level. Okay, well, what's a curse word, and why are people offended? There's the emotional aspect to it, and then you, then for me, trying to fit in at a party, if I can figure out those 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 buzzwords yes. that can buzz emotion, then that that you can use that in the same sort of uh, method as as a curse word. Oh no, absolutely, and I'm. I'm- I dare say every language has got that rapport building function with their language and is, is finding it. And with English, it is swearing. You often swear more with the people you're closest to, right. not with complete strangers. Did you find on an individual basis, there mm-hmm. were certain individuals in this class that were making people uncomfortable, uh, perhaps being a, a bit obnoxious? That's, that, That's a good question. I would be concerned i can just imagine a group of students and there'd be like one or two that are just you know yucking it up a bit or taking it over i would be more worried about i think as a teacher you can control you know like you said you you put it in segments you list the segments you're gonna you're gonna teach that day you get people to opt out but what if some people in the class start start to know make it uncomfortable for other people okay so that's in those classes no but in another class, yes, there was one gentleman who thought that it was funny to make sexually inappropriate remarks. And his argument was, well, we're all adults. Well, that's not really a good argument. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, what's the, under, what's the underpinning theory of that argument? We need to, we need to, we need to draw that out. We need to extrapolate from that. (laughs) And it was sort of like, yes, we're adults, but we don't know each other. We're in an English class. The context is not right. There are people here who you don't know. There were so many ways to break down the argument (laughs) or lack of argument. But no, he he persisted in another class as well. And so much so that to the... To the school's credit, they stopped him coming back because, he, and he he hadn't done one of my classes. Clearly, he would have known the rules. Right. Um, but yeah, they they stopped him from coming back because even in English, he he was removed from the language. But it did make people feel uncomfortable. Again, showing that context is key mm. uh, to to using it. Um, yeah, having a. It's interesting because Duvalier does a lot of research with, you know, emotional intelligence or kind of reading the room. He actually – that's one thing that I debated with him in the interview is he says that your emotional IQ is is is, is trait. So I, – and I just can't believe that's true. Like so if you like, – my argument was like if you're traveling around to different countries and you're, and you're learning about different people and you know how to adapt to certain situations, mm-hmm. like isn't that a state – effect like can't you get Benny you saying no no your your personality is what it is and that's it so i don't know if i agree that your personality is what it is and that's it because that means if if you're not a, if, if you're a, you know a disagreeable sort of person that you're always going to be disagreeable and 
I don't think that's the case. I think people can change. Yeah, I, he really stuck to his guns on that. He, like a lot of his research, he talks about, you know, emotional IQ and he al- always calls it a trait. Uh, it's, it's, oh, it's interesting. And that you said that's episode 44. Yeah. I'm going to go and listen to that because I've only read his research on swearing and the use of uh, especially multilinguals learning and expressing themselves with taboo language. So my, I might have to read up a little bit more on on what he's saying because, yeah, I, I'm the wrong person to say anything because just because I haven't read his 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 opinion or his argument. So I, I, I'm not taking sides. I'm on the fence. And <laughs> plus I reference his stuff and maybe one day he'll read my work and he'll go, hey, that's the guy who stood up for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's my stance there. You know, the other, the I, gotta, I just got to bring this other point up in the Diwale interview. Yes. So Diwale does all this research on cursing, right? And yes. he's constantly, he, the BBC loves to interview him. Um, he does all these interviews about cursing, right? But in the interview, he specifically said that there's one word that he hates and he thinks it should be banned. And I was really surprised to hear that. Um, so he's in the UK, isn't he? He's based yeah. in the UK. Can you okay. guess what, can you guess what the word is? Don't don't say is, it out loud. Just just maybe. Is write, it an ist? Is it an ist word? Like no, it's not even. Word? It's not a curse word. It's it's a it's a semantics kind of thing. Does it start with M? No. Okay. It's. I'll just tell you. You're never going to get it. So the distinction between native and non-native English teachers. So he he wants non-native. You, you might have. I think even one of the citations in your paper. Uh, th- there was the phrase LX. So he yes. he says that he he actually got really I was actually kind of surprised because in the paper he was talking about native and non-native teachers and then I kind of brought it up he says I hate that word we should never use that word we need to use lx and I just and I thought okay I understand that point and now I'm aware of that I didn't know that that was offensive I can see how it can be offensive because you're so you can degrade people or you can isolate people so from now on I now I'm aware of it I didn't know it um. But, but what do you mean I can I can degrade someone or so you can classify like I, I speak Korean, but I wouldn't say I'm a native speaker. I would say it's my second language. I don't feel degraded if someone says, That's oh, Korean your second language. That's yes, my it is. yeah, that's that would be my argument. But we're talking about the reverse. If we're talking about um English teachers or ESL or EFL teachers. Yeah. And you're saying that one person is a native teacher, one person is a non native teacher, it's implied that the native teacher is more uh competent as an English teacher or you know, they're better, which I don't, I don't agree. So, I mean, that's, that's his I, I, point. That's, yeah. I see his point. And I think with teachers, it's different. Yeah. I think I somewhat agree. I think you're an English teacher or you're not an English teacher. You're a math teacher or you're not a math teacher. Sure. Whether you're native or not shouldn't really matter, but so, that's where the distinction comes in the literature. But I, I see the point of just saying, I'm an English teacher. So I, because, I agree. Yeah. So I agreed with him after he told me that. But I thought it was very interesting if we're, if we're sort of extrapolating to the emotional attachment of meanings and words, right? And usage. We're having this conversation. We're joking about cursing. And then mm. I said that word. He said, no, no, don't say that word. 
And so that's, I guess it is connected to emotions, right? So it's like in that context, if we're talking about professional English teachers, um, he didn't appreciate it that I used that word. Now, I don't think he, he took it personally. But yeah, he, he wouldn't take it personally, yeah. It, but um, it was kind of, it is kind of interesting. So even in the context of we're talking about taboo words or we're talking about curse words, there's still, that's why this research field, I think it's very brave that you're doing because you can get in trouble at any time, if you use a word, like for example, I use that word, right? And mm. um, he didn't like it, and he told me, and now I'm now I'm aware of it. That's fine, but that's but why. The, the, yeah, go, go that's ahead. yeah. No, but then the flip side of that is, and I'm not saying this was the case with him or with you or with anyone, but the flip side is, you're taking a moral high ground, which is just showing that you are more virtuous than someone else. And I think that's also a very slippery slope that you're correcting someone else's linguistic usage or word usage when the intention wasn't there. Because language should all be about the intention. Well, and here's the other here's the other thing. I have an emotional attachment to the word hate. Mm. So he said, he said, I hate that word. And I I think that's very strong language. It's very, very strong. It's and almost up there with a bore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great word. I mean, when I was a little kid, my mother told me not to say that word. Mm. And hate is not a curse word, right? But it's got a strong emotional attachment, right? Definitely attach, can attach to lots of different curse words or racist words, of course. Yeah. So now, for example, maybe hate didn't have a strong – that's where it can get confusing, right? So he's, oh, he, he's a he's multilingual genius. Yeah, he probably mm. speaks fluently like four languages. Mm. So he might have a different emotional attachment to hate than I do. And then I took it stronger than maybe he meant it, right? So I guess curse word taboo language, It's you, you brought well, up that point earlier. It's all about this emotional attachment and, and context. That's very interesting because the word hate, actually, I did. it comes up in, in the class I, I teach where I say to someone, would you prefer someone to say, I hate you, I wish you were dead? Which is more offensive? I hate you, I wish you were dead, or... Well, I mean, I mean, the latter is way less offensive. Exactly. But people are offended because someone said, oh, you used a swear word. It's like, well, hold on. I can offend you so much easier by not using swear words. So this is in, in my new papers. I'm getting rid of the offensive. I'm, I'm, I'm terming it to potentially offensive words because it's that was a mistake on mine, SOTL, swearing offensive and taboo language. It should be potentially offensive because as soon as someone says this word is offensive, they're putting their their beliefs onto everyone else. Uh, and I just don't think that that's – unless it's an intentional attack, I think that, yeah, it's very – Slippery slope. There's another buzzword for you. So slippery S slope. S O T L, not to be confused with S O L. We just have to be clear. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um. Yeah. You know S O L, right? No. Oh, that was going to really? be my next question. Ah, dang it! Then that's why my joke fell flat. So S O L <laughs> means. Uh... Ah. Okay. So. <laughs> No, I do know that then, but I hadn't heard it just used as an acronym like that. So most people, yeah, like in, at least in America, you would say, oh, you're SOL. But then would someone be like, well, WTF? And mm. then we'd all just speak in three words. No, word, no, three word that, that's not good. I don't like that. No, no nor do I. So but SOL I like. did become part of the vernacular. 
Oh, really? Before text messaging and stuff. This is when I was like a kid. Oh, wow. So yeah. I don't think I've ever heard it spoken, but when you once you said it, it's like, you know, everyone knows that phrase. But is it still used or is it a bit archaic now? I don't know. I haven't used it in a while. So I was excited to use it on this show. <laughs> so <laughs> we can redo that part and I can, I'll just put in canned laughter. <laughs> Just edit that. <laughs> just actually, go back. I, I might do that. That's Sorry. hilarious. I actually, that's that's the problem when you prep for a show and you actually write out a joke and it just falls flat. Oh, well. Yeah, See, you should tell me coming. Sorry. I was kind of wondering if you ever had – all right. So one of the, the, the most difficult lessons I ever had to teach when I was teaching at a Japanese school that's similar to what you're talking about in Korea was I had to teach humor. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to teach jokes and, oh my gosh, I'll never forget the feeling of just you know, being coated in sweat and feeling uncomfortable because once, you, once you're trying to explain a joke and people are just staring at you, I think it'd be more easier to teach cursing and, and taboo language than to teach humor because teaching well, humor would just suck the, the fun out of everything. Oh, this is why it's funny. And then immediately it's uh, – the second you have to explain to someone why a joke's funny, <laughs> it's the worst feeling ever. Yes. And I think you are right. I think swearing, because it's in all known languages, or at least taboo is in all known languages, as soon as you start the conversation about teaching taboo, like where do you swear, people come up with all these ideas, you know, when I'm fighting with my, my brother or when I'm making a joke, etc. And most people forget when they're driving. And so what about when you're driving? And so instantly everyone can relate to times where we would swear. So it's easy to start a conversation, but humor, not everyone finds the same things funny. So, I mean, there's certain things which are universally funny. Like when someone falls over, that's always funny, apparently. So it's very hard to teach that concept. But I guess, how did you do it? Did you use relevance theory? Because that could help. No, I I don't remember. I probably did it wrong and I'm never going to teach it again. Didn't do it wrong. You I didn't, just didn't do it right the first time. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't seek out upskilling and teaching humor because it just it, it hurt me too too much. Yeah, that would be a hard class to teach. That would be definitely a hard class to teach. Right. Now, I guess uh, we can kind of wrap up the interview. I guess what, what should I do here? Because I think the podcast series is marked as non-explicit. Right. But I'd love to keep the cursing in, but then I'd have to change. Uh, go back and go back and bleep it. Can you bleep it? There's only can, about four can, times you curse. Yeah, I can bleep it. It's it's all right. How about this? Here's what we'll do. Uh, for this episode, I will go back and bleep it. If you'd like to get the the raw MP3 file, send me an email at lostincitations at gmail.com. And it's just easier because again. We have a non-explicit rating on iTunes or whatever, so there's no reason to change our rating just for one episode. Um, no, exactly. I, that's and fair. I didn't know that at the start, so to be no, fair, no, no, I, I, um, I, I'm not taking the blame on that. <laughs> no, I, nor should you. Nor should you. All right. So um, the paper that we are discussing today is teaching about taboo language in EFL or ESL classes: a starting point. Uh, I believe people can just find this on Google Scholar. I think that's they can indeed. Yes, it's available there. So uh, I think that we we can we can talk about uh, much more. But uh, again, I like to keep this under an hour. So thank you so much, uh, Josh, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. And I'm going to go and listen to 
number 44 and send any email apologies to the good professor if I have spoken out of line. But thanks again, and I'll um, hopefully see you again on another podcast when the next paper comes out. Yes, let's yeah, let, let's do it again. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.